Season two is nigh, ladies and gentlemen. Greg Koch here, Chewing the Gristle podcast. It continues unabated. We got some powerful musical friends lined up. We're talking guitars, music, food, aliens. It doesn't matter. We're just chewing the diggity doggone gristle. Ladies and gentlemen, this week on Chewing the Gristle, we have a gentleman, a producer, a singer-songwriter, a guitar player extraordinaire. His name is Butch Walker, and he's worked on so many unbelievably huge records. It might sound like a hyperbolic tirade if I listened to them all, so just tune in and dig it. Butch Walker. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, another installment of Chewing the Gristle. And I'm here with Butch Walker, who is, doggone it, Butch, your resume is is blinding my brain. You've done so much stuff, singer, songwriter, producer, worked with so many, not only are you yourself a, a potent artist, but uh, many of today's artists of great potency you've also collaborated with. And you're also a hell of a guitar player, doggone it. So oh, we can God. talk about anything we want to talk about. But I thought it would be just fun to just shoot the breeze and or chew the gristle, as the case may be. So how you yes. doing? I'm good, man. I'm good. Just, uh, you know, in, in between uh, working on several records right now, so, which is good, producing them. And so I'm really happy uh, that there's a lot of work to be had. Um, I'm definitely, you know, I, last year was a wash, as they say. So I, I didn't really do much last year on purpose. So this year, um, it's I built this new studio at, at, out of the old barn on the property. And so it's, uh, I'm, I'm back in full swing, just making records for people and uh, lots, lots, lots to be grateful for, I guess, you know? Yes, it's, it's such a bizarre thing was last year in the fact that of course as as musicians who you know when you're touring obviously that's all out the window getting together with people from hither and yon in a recording studio that's out the window but yet this other aspect of things people have like are buying guitars and gear and yeah. every aspect of the material aspect of the music industry is thriving in a way that has never existed before it's just it's kind of mind-numbing it's 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 pretty incredible that shows the power of music because so many people were cooped up inside for a year, at least the ones that were giving a damn about what was going on. And right. that made it that made a lot of people uh yearn for not only hearing music, but making it as well. And I I love that. I love that that was the outlet that that was the universal language, so to speak, that people needed uh uh during times of strife. And so yeah, it was great. It was cool to see. Uh, like gear companies literally, you know, flourishing during this. Cause I right. know it wasn't the case for a lot of companies and that makes me obviously hurts my heart to know that any, especially small businesses suffered, but I liked seeing at least the small businesses as well as the big ones that were catering to uh, people wanting to uh, uh, find that creative outlet through music, uh, by, you know, software recording and you know so many people i know last year that started learning how to record at home and make records and right here that now they have now they have now they have things they can put out uh, and release because they sat at home and learned a new they learned a new craft and that's kind of cool you know Absolutely. i mean silver lining whatever it was a fucking awful year but right. like, <laughs> but, right. but but let's at least give it a silver lining with that you know right well i'm interested to get your your 
take on just the whole aspect of how the industry is now, which, of course, a lot of stuff was um, exacerbated, if you will, by the pandemic and people staying at home. But this whole this whole online culture of music, I mean, it's interesting because some people take a, uh, you know, kind of a I'm not confrontational view, but uh, a slightly pessimistic view about the devaluing of music. But I I, for the most part, think. This is like the golden age. I mean, you yep. the, the amount of information out there and the fact that not only can you have access to, you know, uh, all this different music that's a, that has been or currently is that you would never have seen otherwise. And the fact that there's no kind of um, middleman in between, cons- you know, the consumer and the artist. You know what I mean? That you can discover things. Uh, but at some point, it also, the only downside is, is that it may in some ways, uh, devalue um, other aspects of musicality in terms of, you know, um, songs and so on and so forth as opposed to other. I mean, just what, what are your thoughts on all that kind of stuff? I got a lot of them. It's a, it's a I mean, because it's a slippery slope with, with uh, you know, thinking that with the uh, – um, <clears throat> with the change in commerce with music, the way that's happened in the past decade, um, where, you know, you and I grew up in an era, I'm assuming anyway, that you're, I don't know how old you are. I'm three years older than you are. (laughs) So then we are, we are of the same ilk that like we grew up, uh, whatever we heard on the radio, uh, in our little rural towns, or if we were lucky to be in a town with enough people that, that were able to, you know, have access to, bootleg records and imports and things like that. Right. Uh, that's how we, or going to the record store. That's how we got our musical education in TV. Right. We got our musical edu- education, uh, by listening to the radio, seeing what was on TV and what our friends at the record stores were listening to and buying and, and things like that. So, um, that was a pretty limited shelf of music. I mean, if you think about it, you'd have like a station playing that, you know, there would be like, I don't know what the statistics are, so don't quote me, but I mean, let's just round, let's just hypothetically say a hundred records came out in a year, uh, total back in, back in the day, back, right. back in our youth. And now there's thousands, thousands right. Um, and, and you have access to every single one of those. So the downside was what? Um, streaming came along, file trading came along, uh, you know, where kids were file swapping records online, uh, you know, in MP3 form. And then there was MP3 players. And then there was uh, peer-to-peer uh, downloading uh, sites, uh, whatever, Napster, all that kind of stuff. And then streaming. So that, so you had, um, you had the really the voice that you were only hearing complaining about it were the mega, mega, big artists that were used to selling every release, like at least a million uh, or more. And so there was a lot of complaints from the top tier about that. Whereas all of a sudden I was hearing about so many new artists all of a sudden that I'd never would have had access to because Target puts 20 titles in their stores. Right. You know, next next to the next to the toilet paper roll, you know, section. And it's like so uh, if anything, I feel like music was sort of getting devalued more than it was definitely degraded right. and definitely undervalued as far as like all all that was out there. That's why 
there was something called the underground and in indie back in the day, whereas now that's just mainstream. Right. But, but at the time, I didn't have access growing up to anything except for what I said, what was on the radio or what, and that was like, th- that was like four artists, you know? Right. Right. So, so you wore those records out and you took a very, you took a very um, romantic attachment to an artist because you weren't offered a whole lot. You right. were offered like whatever, let's just call it a Toby Keith record. And then, you know, an ACDC record. Right. And you'd be like, Oh, I'll take ACDC. Uh, so like that being said, all of a sudden I'm having, unlimited access and and people sending me it was a rush it was just constant of people like, have you heard this band have you heard this art have you heard this have you heard this i'm like this is amazing i'm getting to literally go online and listen and find music that i like and want to hear because let's let's face it before that when the radio was king and they were the ones in charge of breaking artists careers that was like for the most part, not all of them, but for the most part, it was like a fucking 60 year old dude in a suit right. deciding what was cool for a 13 year old to like. Right. And, and, and a lot of times it wouldn't, they wouldn't have their interest at heart because it would be, there was a lot of, um, fringe benefits, right. um, being offered up for, uh, you know, for plays and spins of new artists of n- new records by major labels on the radio, as long as they gave that, you know, program director at the radio station season tickets to the Lakers or something like that. It was never, it was not about the music at that point. So I think that karmically got what it deserved, to be honest. Right. I think it did. Now, sure, the producer and writer side of me definitely still sees there was a there was a paradigm shift where it was like, oh, all of a sudden now, you know, when I'm making X amount of dollars and there's this much money for a budget for a recording for a record for somebody that I'm producing or the royalty splits on this or X amount that diminished greatly after the big decline of the, of the system and this new regime of, of listening to music comes in. So that, uh, this is all, it's all a balancing scale for me because part of me is the artist that still puts out records of his own and tours all the time. But now that I have, all of these other outlets for people to hear my music um, and and have, like I, I noticed what happened and this was the most interesting part. Sorry, I'm jumping around, but the no, most right. interesting, the most interesting part was for years, I stayed this mid-level artist. Still, I still consider myself to be one. I'm not like unheard of, but I'm also not like John Mayer level, right? So it's like, uh, never really had the success that a label and radio could give can sometimes give an artist. So I had to go out and claw my way up to the middle, uh, touring and get building up a fan base. I noticed though, that that stayed so stagnant until this new era of the, the, this big, you know, the big, great, you know, uh, streaming revolution and all that happened. All of a sudden, more and more people are coming to the shows and I'm, and I'm, I'm actually thriving more as a, as a independent artist than I ever have because you would have never found my record in fucking Target before. Right. It, would, it wouldn't have been in there. It would have been, like I said, there'd be like 10 country records and 10 hip hop titles and that'd be it. Exactly. Still to this day. Um, right. But but now, you know, I can be, get on someone's playlist and people discover and go like, oh, I discovered your music through this playlist for for dads or playlist for whatever you want to call it. <laughs> like any, any playlist on Spotify uh, or, you know, Apple Music or whatever. So- I think it's a beautiful time to be alive. And I'm still glad that 
that I'm making music in, in this era because it's more exciting than it's ever been. Yeah, I think so as well. I, Sorry, I finally I put a period concur. on it. <laughs> you know, it is, it's amazing that um, I always said, you know, in the golden era of music business, I didn't make shit. So, you know, whatever was the golden era, <laughs> yep. it wasn't until, you know, it was, you know, if you, if you don't do something that's easily quantifiable or categorized, that mm -hmm. old paradigm was not for you. I mean, that's the bottom line. And sure. nowadays, all you need to, my, my whole thing is like, I, I don't need a million. I just need enough. You know, that's it's right, like, that's right. that's you right. just need enough people that are into what you do and will continue to support it. Uh, and, and, you know, it's kind of interesting. I do a lot of, as I'm sure you do, and most, most musicians are geeky about auto, uh, you know, people we look up to their autobiographies or biographies, just the history of the different musicians. And, and it's amazing, but it does not end well for about 99%. Of no. the people who have these meteoric careers, no, it doesn't. Uh, and in, but somehow that's that's the paradigm we're all held up against. Well, why aren't you know you'll never be so and so, or are you underrated, or like who gives a shit? There's like survival or not. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I mean there there was always that thing. I would always I remember like all these like dinosaur, you know, uh, industry people that were still hanging on to the last gasp of the old ways, uh, you know, a decade ago or more where, you know, this, you could see this new thing was happening and all they cared about was like, yeah, but like, I mean, or how many records did you sell? Or like, right. you know, what are you, and it was like, it doesn't fucking matter, man. I mean, right. what matters is, is I'm still out playing and this sounds cocky, but I'm proud of it. The fact that I'm, you know, even at 51 years old, I can still go out and sell out a room every town I go to, or at least in a lot of the towns I go to, uh, without anything on the radio or any record right. out. And it's like, and I'll, I'll still put records out cause I love making music. And, uh, and, and that being said, it, it's like, it doesn't, it, it, it doesn't matter because, you know, we're still here. <laughs> right. You know, so many of my, so many of my peers, I know this is not just congratulating myself. I'm just, I'm just proud of the fact that, that I'm still able to do it. Right. And a lot of that is due to the change in scenery, the, ch right. in the music in, in, in the musical landscape and the business side of it and everything where it's less, less being dependent on some lab major label to wipe my butt for me and pay the bills. Right. And you know, there's, there's something great about that too, about being able to say, I did it myself. You sure. Know, I, I did this on my own, whatever this is. I mean, it's, it's, it's small and humble, but it's enough it's enough to fill my soul and it's enough sure. to make me feel good about it. And it's enough to make enough, a room full of people happy every time I go through a town. Right. And, and there's something about that that makes me sleep better, you know? Absolutely. And it keeps your soul intact, which is key. Totally. <laughs> yes. We get to make, still make music, you know? Exactly. Yeah. I was interested about talking with you about the whole you know, the, just the definition of producer, because I think, you know, certainly over the years, I had different ideas of what they were. I mean, I guess the real, the first bona fide, like, big time producer I ever met or worked with was Neil Dorsman. And he was working with uh, a buddy of my name, Willie Porter, and I was on the session. And, and I was amazed. I was like, holy shit, not only is this guy engineering the record, he's like got the budget of who's this, that, and the next. It's like he was this 
you know, Yoda figure that was completely navigating the ship. And then, where another experience is a producer's kind of guy in the corner that lets everybody else do their shit and goes, yeah, I like that or, or not, you know? Yep. And, and it just, there's all these different aspects. Uh, but you seem like one of these guys who does it all. I mean, you, if, if need be, you could take an artist, bring them in there with no other musicians, and you can cover all the parts and really make a, not, not just because it's financially feasible, but because it's the best thing for it. Uh, so how do you how do you think you've developed over the years as a producer and what would you define it as if it can be defined as a thing? Well, it's um, a great question because it, it, it is a very wide gamut that a producer uh, role can be. Um, it also can be a very narrow one uh, and still be great. And that's what I realized over the years that when I started diving into what it was. And at first I did think I had to do all of those things that were expected, like that Neil Dorsman did, like where I'm balancing the budgets and and hiring all the players and do and that is the that is the essential role of a of a producer to uh not so much do the um the money side of it, but to be conscious and aware of what the budget is. And also, and a lot of times that went out the window in the eighties. Um, but there was always this, the underlying, uh, thing that, uh, the occurring thing that a producer does is be, um, the football coach. You're the, you're the, you're the, you're, you're the band leader. You're the football coach. You're the, you're the, you're the therapist. Uh, there's a lot of things you can call it. Um, and there's so many producers that I look up to. Let's, let's use some examples. Um, growing up, uh, being heavily influenced in the producer world by a few, uh, Rick Rubin being one, which was not a technical guy. He definitely started out, uh, more almost like the A&R guy. He was able to go, I'm, I can find, I'm going to find the talent. I'm going to put them with these people and it's going to be incredible. It's going to make magic. Not like, oh, I need you to put, you know, I need you to roll off, you know, high pass, low pass this, put 10K on the vocal here and this and dump 60 here and compress that. He, he doesn't, he's not, there's not a technical bone in that guy's body. It's all big picture. Got it. And that to me was a massive lesson growing up to learn because I, on the other hand, would get in the studio like Brendan O'Brien uh, out of Atlanta where I grew up uh, in Georgia was doing all of the records in the like, like in the like late eighties, all through the nineties, he was like the golden boy and came up through Rick Rubin's camp and he became a producer because he was Rick, one of Rick's engineers and um, that he always used because Rick always needed a great engineer. And that's another thing Rick was great at was finding plucking good talent. So he knew how to find the best engineers and the best mixers for the job to, to put with the best artists for the jobs. And, and Brendan was one of those guys who came out of Atlanta and was a engineer mixer, but also killer guitar player, killer organ player, piano player, um, musician, uh, singer could do it all. And so he became this Swiss army knife producer that was like, okay, if, if you need to literally put that guy in a room with a singer, with a, let's call it whoever, like a, a Mick Jagger to do a solo record, this guy could literally play almost every single instrument in the room, organize it, arrange it, compose it, mix it, 
you know, right. engineer everything. Um, and that's incredible to have that skill, to have that many skill sets. I don't think that it's any more valuable or less valuable than what say Rick does, which is being able to be this therapist and this coach and this, uh, uh, to get the best out of somebody, you know, it's fair to say that a lot of his early records, he wasn't really in the studio that much. He'd show up every once in a while and go, Hmm, it's not right. I don't know what that means, but it's just not right. Maybe make it more blue. I don't know. I'm just not, I'm not <laughs> quoting him, but like he would, he would literally speak not in technical terms. And then the band would, it would click with the engineer and with them and they'd go back and they would do more. Me, I'm too much of a control freak and an alpha, and I'm not good at being able to uh, miss a beat in the studio. So I don't want to not be, I don't want to be gone. I want to be present. So when there's a record being done, I'm there for every, I'm there from the time the kick drum is mic'd on the drums to the, to the final mix and master. Uh, now being the fact that there's a lot uh, of computer assist uh, compared to back when we were on tape. Uh, right. back in the day and also uh things being able to be done remotely like mixing and mastering and not having to be there for those sessions but still be there for you know be there mentally and be there um you know audibly to be able to tell them to do things and th there that's good because it's a lot less flying around the country i have to do uh but um i really enjoyed that the tactile hands-on side of it and i grew up engineering my own stuff so yes. I feel like there's just a, there's a, there's a part of me that wants to always be there for all of it and always kind of be in the driver's seat, which is like where I am right now. And nine times out of 10, if I'm making a record with say like a solo artist, um, you're looking at the band, I'm, I'm the band. Right. So I'm right. playing like every instrument and creating the track, the music, um, recording it all I already, you know, just lucky enough that the 10,000 hours of engineering growing up and learning the hard way, um, got me that ability to, to get the sounds I want without having to translate it to some outside engineer, which saves a lot of time, honestly, for me, I, sure. I, I I'm impatient and I like to work and I don't like though. On the other hand, there's those in, there's those producers that are so technical that came from nothing but an engineering world that they really, really, really get off on sitting and doing a microphone cable shootout for three hours. Right. <laughs> and A being nine volt batteries in a distortion box. You know, right. I I would rather like literally claw my eyeballs out than I do understand. that shit. Yeah. So I want to be able to like, and I get it. The end result might make it sound this much better. No, no kid's going to listen to it and go like, God, man, I can really tell the difference in that battery on that record. I can really tell the mic cable difference on that record. So I, I look, I'm kind of a little bit more of the, you know, if it works and it's working and, and it, it's all about the song. And if sure. the song is working, I don't care how it's recorded. I just don't. I mean, right. I've had people send me vocals on iPhone that sure. are literally singing into the iPhone and no one has ever told me ever no one's ever said, you know, uh, what's going on? What's up with that vocal on that record? I mean, it sounds right. like it was done on an iPhone. <laughs> no one, no one. It's stupid. I mean, when the Strokes' first record came out, I remember like A and R guys being like, you know, oh man, sound. Can you hear how they recorded that on tape? How warm it is and everything. Uh, and I'm like, and I'm like, dude, they did that on New Window on a computer. 
Right. It was done using like a cheap, shitty computer with a $150 music program. So might as well have been GarageBand. Right. You know? right, right, the, right. End re- the end result is the end result. You know, so it doesn't matter how you get there. And that, that, that applies to guitars as well. If we wanted to talk about that, you know, it's like, you know, guitar amps versus modelers. Uh, right. What a, a, a real 50s Telecaster or 60s Les Paul versus a relic reissue or whatever. Like no one cares or knows no, when, you know, not. it's yeah. what feels good when you're listening to it, what sounds good and what plays good. There's just no rules. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't have that set of rules when people come in, you got to play my gear. It's better than yours, right. you know? And well, I've well, seen, to, go I ahead. was going to ask you that. Do, do you have like, um, that means like certain people have their recipe for, this is how I record an acoustic guitar. This yep. is my recipe for recording electric. This is how I like to do drums. Or, or do you have multiple approaches to those things? Or do you have, this is what I do and this is part of my sound and how no, my No, I, I have, I have a anything goes approach. I have multiple, you know, and if that means literally like taking this microphone and like, you know, the couch out of view that you can't see right here and putting it over there while they're playing an acoustic guitar part and throwing it right on the, on the sound hole or wherever, you know, just above it, wherever, you know, I, I, I do know technical, uh, stuff. I learned, I, like I said, I went, I went all the way to the end just to come back, uh, right, back, back in the day, <laughs> you know, like, you know, the best signal chain and the ultimate placement of mics and all that. But at the, like I said, at the end of the day, somebody's sitting here playing a part and I don't want them to have to get up and go sit down in a booth and say, okay, now just give me 45 minutes. Right. And then we can start tracking this thing that you're already vibing on right, right now. Exactly. Fuck no. I'm not going to take 45 minutes. I'm not going to AB kick drums for seven hours because by that time, no one cares about what they just came exactly. up with. Exactly. No one cares about the recording anymore. No one cares. If they're burnt out on the song. They're burnt out on the day. And they've sat around while you sat there and indulged your technical fantasies, you right. know, of like, of like, you know, oh man, this, no, 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 this. And I get it. I do know on the other hand, there is an art form to, to like trial and error right. and like sitting all day and finding the perfect kick drum for this song sure. or the perfect snare for this song or auditioning seven acoustic guitars for an acoustic guitar part. But I, I don't, I just don't do that. And I've never had anybody really complain about it except for people that are so, OCD, right? They need that for comfort, you know, right? In their life. Well, and, there's a and, lot of religiosity and myth to all that shit, too. You know oh, what I mean? it's so, so blown out, you know. I mean, it's so over, uh, you know, it, it's it's so overdone. Like, I mean, everybody thinks that, you know, that you have to have. I mean, I, I'm I don't want to sound hypocritical. I've got a fucking awesome collection of mics, and I got I got some good stuff. And I got some cheap stuff. I got cheap mic pre's, nice mic pre's. I've got, you know, all over the pl- all over the map. I've got some good vintage gear and then great reissue stuff. It sure. all gets used. It all gets used equally in tandem. Nothing right. it, it it really sometimes is what's closest to me. And exactly. I mean, I do know if I need a strat versus a Les Paul for a sure. part, you know, Absolutely. if we want to be get a little guitar, you know, anal right now, I can do that. But and and but that being said, as a producer, I really love giving the artist a good experience, a positive experience, and momentum 
so that when they leave the day, there's a rush of adrenaline and they feel like they got something done. Sure, sometimes you have to revisit and redo it because maybe we did go too quick on something and we didn't spend enough time on something. No, I don't just rush through it just to rush through it ever. Don't get me wrong. The song takes precedent. If it takes days to get the song right, I'll spend the, the time getting the song right more than I will worrying about the technical aspect of it. Well, let's, let's if you don't mind, I, I'd like to uh, pop open the, the can on, on, on just the idea of of the song in terms of, you know, it's, it's so interesting over the years. It's, it's, you know, you encounter people that I, I, I refer to as just, you know, they say it's all about the song. Obviously. Absolutely. If a song's a dog, a song's a dog, but ultimately to me, it's all about music and the song is a huge part about the music. Um, there is an aspect of me that likes, I mean, this is just me talking, but I mean, if, if I hear this, I remember I was working with an artist one time and, and he had this, uh, the chorus, every time it broke into the chorus, you, you got goose, you got goosebumps. And it, and it was, it was a combination of thing. It was the vibe of the band. <clears throat> it was his vocal, but it was almost like you didn't really give a shit what he was saying. You know what I mean? But yet the, 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 there was a couple of words in the third verse that he felt just weren't up to some kind of imagined literary excellence mm -hmm. uh, that fit it into what he thought that the, you know, his super groovy, you know, super, sorry, super groovy, folky type people would look at it and go, yeah, what was with, what was with that ending of the, <laughs> of the third voice or the, of the third verse? So my question to you is what, what is your feeling on that? Is it, is it kind of like in terms of like what you're talking about recording? Yes, there is this technical aspect of things that of course works, but sometimes it's just the overall vibe. And sometimes, oh. yeah, maybe that, maybe that second verse is stupid as shit, but the whole thing works. Totally. It's a perfect storm is what it is. And you need that. I mean, I grew up loving records that sounded great, that sounded good. So I appreciated the, I appreciated the, uh, of how the road they took to get there to make something sound amazing. And it, and it was a combination of players, gear, recording, producer, engineer, everything. Um, the lyrics, <laughs> that's a, that's, you know, you're, you're talking to somebody who, is equal parts songwriter. So I care a right. lot about, I care a lot about the lyrics of a sure, song. Sure, absolutely. Um, I, I don't think that though, when it depends on, that's, that's a broad thing because I don't think as, when I was a child, I don't, you know, an impressionable kid, I don't think I cared as much about lyrics because I was more into the feeling I got from the music. I mean, case in point, listening to, listening to, Kiss and ACDC and, um, and, and, you know, I mean, you name it. I mean, you can go all the way down the line. Um, uh, there was, I didn't really know what they were talking about in a lot of those songs. Right. Thank God. Cause my mom was like, you know, she's like, do you know what they're saying? You know, cause it would be like some racy raunchy shit. And I would just right. be like, no, but it sounds great. You know, listen to this, you know, my Sharona, it's fucking awesome. You know? Right. And, um, and it's true. It is awesome when you listen to it, but yeah, it's just like a song about wanting to screw, screw right. a girl to death. And so, <laughs> right. and, and so it, 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 you know, there's a lot of that, but like, I think it just depends. And that will obviously going back to the producer role, um, that depends on who you're working with and what you're working with. Right. You know, yeah. if I were, if I'm doing a, if I'm doing a, like a, a, a folk record or something that's more based around, uh, the, 
all of it, all around the voice and all around the lyric, then I'm right. gonna, I'm going to really put the attention and focus on that than I sure. am more uh, if it were doing a you know a record that where it's just a, a rowdy loud rock band that it's all about getting the attitude of it uh, right 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 right. Uh, and knowing what you signed up for with it anyway, if it's not going to, if the lyrics kind of might take a backseat to the, to the, to the rhythm. And, right. uh, and so that to me is, that to me is all part of, uh, it, it's really a la carte. It's, it's depends on who you're working with and what you're doing, but, uh, but yeah, it's a perfect storm, isn't it? It's a perfect storm of like, of the combination of the playing, how it sounds coming through the speakers, um, and then whether or not you get the bonus of the lyric, you know, being right. great right. <laughs> and relating to it. Uh, I don't necessarily, I mean, I think, I mean, arguably I sound like an, I sound definitely my age, like an old man when I say like a lot of, you know, a lot of like pop music today and, and hip hop uh, that I, that I hear, it's not much different from growing up and listening to pop and that kind of stuff back when I was a kid where it might not have been, it's not really saying as much as it's making people move. You right. Know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And some people don't want to be challenged, man. Some people don't, a lot of people are just casual music listeners. They're not music lovers. Right. And, that's true. Yeah. And I don't like to, and I don't want to insult their intelligence by making them feel bad about the kind of music that they like because it, they just want it as escapism or right. background, background noise or shit to dance to in the right. kitchen or at the club. Um, that's an important role. Uh, I don't think that that stuff's about the lyrics at the end of the day. I mean, right. ED, EDM is not about the, 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 the top line, you know, the, the hook that some, you know, girl with an accent is singing over the top of it, you know, right. we're, we're going to live forever. Okay. You said that in the last seven songs, but like, whatever, it makes people feel good when they're dancing to it, right. you know? But um, but do I love beautiful melodies telling me terrible things like Tom Waits? And I mean, yes, I love that. Love yeah. it so much. Yep. It's like that's some of my favorite music is the stuff that makes me cry. I mean, I want to, I love crying on airplanes listening to music. It's one of my favorite <laughs> things to do. <laughs> I just don't do it listening to David Guetta, you know. I do it right. listening to, you know, people like <laughs> Tom Waits or, you know, whoever, you know. Right. Springsteen, you know, there's just so many people saying beautiful things. Sorry, I'm 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 jumping no, all over okay. the map just, with your questions. I, I, I just was thinking about. I don't think I actually knew uh, what Robert Plant was saying in the Wanton song until I was in my 40s, and I knew that that <laughs> opening line was "Silent woman in the night she came, she took my seed from my shaking frame." I thought, you know, <laughs> what? <laughs> That's kind of how I feel felt about like every other Stones song when I was growing up. I was like, "Damn, this is a band that totally nails vibe," but uh, I, I don't know what the fuck he's saying half the time. Exactly. And, and, it, and it wasn't like it was always poetry. It was just right. it was just sung with conviction and with right. s with sex and uh, you know, like still don't uh, still don't know what Beast of Burden's about. You know, I'm exactly. still trying to figure it out. Still some lines that are unintelligible to me, uh, but man, it's, it's, it's great. And it's, yes. you know, so there's no rules. I mean, my favorite Pearl Jam song was like a song he improvised on the microphone through the, through the yellow lead better is the name of the song. And he's <laughs> making up the lyrics as he goes. Right. <laughs> and it's, it's like some of it, he's not even saying words and people right. like, 
<laughs> out in the front row, just like going, they're all crying, like, you know, it's my jam. It's right. Like, <laughs> That's funny shit. It's pretty funny. Yep. We interrupt this regularly scheduled gristle-infested conversation to give a special shout-out to our friends at Fishman Transducers, makers of the Greg Koch Signature Fluence Gristle Tone Pickup Set. Can you dig that? And our friends at Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, bringing the heat in the shadow of the Rocky Mountains. We should probably talk a little bit about some guitar action. Um, Let's do So what... What's your kind of, uh, not the, as, as we said, there's all kinds of different, but if you're going to reach for doing a, a, a track of your own, uh, what, what's the guitar, electric guitar you're going to grab first and foremost 90% of the time? Oh, man. Um, this, is, this is tough because, I mean, I, okay, it, when it comes to acoustics, uh, I'm gonna, I've got a couple of standbys that I love and I grab immediately. One being, um, and it's hanging up back here, uh, it's a Harmony Sovereign. Okay. Uh, like a 50s Harmony Sovereign. I believe it's a, from the 50s. And uh, I have a buddy that um, uh, that has a company called um, uh, Colfax Guitars out of Athens, Georgia now. Started in Denver, Colorado. And um, he uh, he basically restores harmonies and Ks. Oh, cool. And he does this whole thing where he like completely tears them apart and rebraces them and refrets them, rebridges, re everything, almost basically to like a to a pre war Martin spec. Oh. And um, I mean, they people have argued that the that all of those old like you know Sears, Woolworth, you know uh, right. all the, all those guitars from back in the day were made out of you know B factory B parts from like Martin and Gibson factory, but just shittily assembled and right and, and like sold for a hundred dollars so you can still pick those guitars up sometimes for a hundred dollars and then i send them to him and he does this whole thing and it's just a magic cannon when you play it now Excellent. so i grab that guitar mostly as well as uh i've got a yamaha fg 180 which is on the other end of the spectrum an old 60s folk guitar that they made that was their it was their you know it was their affordable consumer competition to a martin and uh man they record so good and i've got a um i've also got a yamaha top of the line um ll56 which they the, they're like it's a master built one and it's sort of like their take on a 60s or 70s like tons of abalone and and all that right. binding and uh block inlays uh, uh john denver made that guitar popular uh back in the uh 70s Yes, yeah, back in the it day. A, yeah, it, they he had his own signature model, uh, and I believe it was just called the um, L55. And um, man, they're beautiful. And if you find them now, they're like ten thousand dollars. You know. So when uh, you're going to record an acoustic, are you a one mic guy or are you? I usually am a one mic guy. I don't do the stereo thing much. I don't do the, you know, sometimes because of my setup here, um, I have everything uh, always mic'd up. And that's one thing I like that I should have touched on earlier is that part of the process for me is like to keep the ball rolling is I like to have it all set up for a band to come in and sit down and start playing and just hit record and let's go. Uh -huh. But it's also for me because I don't like a separate control room. So I have my, I'm in a corner here and I can literally just walk, I can hit record and walk to any instrument in the room and sit down and play. Got and, it. um, that's big for me. So, um, 
the fact that all the mics are always live. And if we need to change out an instrument in front of those mics or even a microphone or move the mic or something, no biggie. We do that. It takes 10 seconds. So, um, uh, but a lot of times I will like experiment with like throwing on the room mics or something whenever I'm recording a close mic guitar and that's fun, you know, in case I want to blend it in and have like this big room sound in the background or something. Uh, but for the most part, I'm pretty simple when it comes to like, I, I mean, I, I love a, uh, I love small and big diaphragm condensers on, on acoustic guitars. My favorite one that I use is a small diaphragm condenser by a Russian company called Soyuz, which is a, an American guy who has these mics hand assembled in Russia back by the, uh, just like the old uh, Telefunken, you know, days were, uh, which were all done in Russia uh, back in the day. Right. And um, so these are beautiful handcrafted microphones and uh, and they, they they have this, you know, pencil mic called a, um, that's basically their answer to like a, um, you know, like a AKG 451 or a, uh, or a, um, you know, a, um, or a, I'm trying to think of a couple of more examples of a small diaphragm one, like a Shure KM84 or whatever. Um, and it's a, uh, and it's got, uh, it's got, uh, changeable capsules on the end for cardioid, hypercardioid and, and Omni. And, oh. um, and so they're great. And I will literally, my go-to is usually just to position that thing, uh, just between the 12th fret and the sound hole. And just oh, kind of get it, I get it right in that area that's not too boomy, but not too thin and still picks up a lot of the string squeak. And uh, and I'll place that anywhere from, I'll place it anywhere from six inches to two feet back, depending on the uh, microphone. If I'm using a larger diaphragm condenser mic, like a uh, the, the Soyuz 47, which is basically, the, or the Soyuz 017, which is basically like a U47. Uh, I have a Chandler Red 47, which is also a big bodied, uh, mm -hmm. kind of a U47 recreation. Um, that's a great acoustic mic. Everybody knows uh, that you can use those and, uh, and it's hard to make them sound bad. Right. Um, but you know, with a, with the right guitar, of course, and the right player and that all matters, but you don't also have to spend $4,000 to get a great acoustic sound. I don't want anybody to think that you have to have those microphones to do that. Those right. so use small diaphragm mic is, is, is way affordable. It's under, it, it's, it's, I don't know how much it is, but like, I mean, you literally can get a great sound with a, I mean, you could do it with an SM57 if you wanted to, uh, right. and I have. A lot of times I'll use a 57 for that. This SM7 I use all the time. This is the one of my favorite unsung, un, unsung heroes for microphones. It's a it's a three or $400 microphone, I think, Right. Um, and, and um, depending on where you get it and if you right. get a used or new one. But um, secret weapon for vocals, always. Uh, I use this as rock vocals all day, all day okay. long. And there's a reason why it stays right here at the console on a gooseneck because I'm doing tons of background vocals and extra parts and stuff on records all the time. And I don't want to leave the driver's seat right. where the computer is. So, uh, so this mic is getting workout used, used for that reason. And, um, when it comes to, uh, electrics, um, I would say, um, I, my, my favorite ones that I've, I mean, God, this is so hard to tell. It's like, it's asking Amelda Marcos what pair of shoes she's going to wear, today, right? So um, it's like, well, you, you know, it depends on what I'm going to be doing. Right. Um, so yes, it, for, and it d definitely depends on what I'm going to be doing. And since I do dabble in a lot of different genres production-wise, I like to have a lot of different guitars. And um, some of my favorites that I go to, though, are um, I have a 
I have a early sixties, uh, I have an early sixties, like a uh, custom shop strat that I love, uh, that actually it's within reach so yeah. and show you, um, that this is one of my favorite guitars to use. Um, this is a, uh, fun little beast and it's more of a, it's kind of set up as a real work workhorse. Uh, it's not set up in like a stock, you know, configuration. Uh, it's, it's, it's a beautifully worn uh, by the factory yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, guitar that, and one of my favorite things is this new tremolo system I've got on here, which is uh, by Vega Trim. Oh, you I know what? They sent me one. The guy just harassed me the other day. Did you dude, use my thing? I, so it's awesome? Oh, dude. I mean, it's like, oh. it stays in tune. And it's like, it does not go out of tune. Like you can literally dive bomb the shit out of it like a Floyd Rose and it's non-locking and it drops right in. I'm no luthier and I've already put two of them in uh, guitars. The other one is, is in an, and it's, it's, it's a great trim. So it's for um, reals. It's for reals. Uh, kind of reminds me of the old like non-locking Floyd that they okay. came out with back in the day and when I was like a little metal shredder, which was a two-post setup though. This one is, you, you know, it, this one drops right in and retrofitted into a, uh, uh, you know, the same four or five screw holes or whatever it is that are in any strat. Um, and then I've got Fishman Fluence pickups. Yeah, you know? my man. That's right. And uh and and I was about to tell you that my other favorite guitar is my Tele. It's also a custom shop uh Fender um double binded deluxe basically uh or Tele custom. Right. Uh which is basically the same as any Tele solid body setup configure classic configuration with double binding and um and with the Andy Summers tobacco sunburst oh, yeah. vibe. And that has the gristle tones in yeah. it. Yeah. And those pickups are a dream. That guitar and this guitar both, like, I mean, I play them on everything that needs single coil because A, they don't they don't hum or buzz and they right. sound they sound really true and really clear and awesome. Use those like crazy. Uh I've got a um I've got a Yamaha custom guitar that I grab a lot that I play. That's like, um, it, it was based off of their, um, they had a guitar called the, I think it was called the S 2000, uh, back in the day, back in like the seventies, it was their jazz, basically, you know, they're like George Benson jazz, yeah, yeah. three thirty five style, uh, guitar, semi hollow, uh, double cutaway. Um, and, uh, when they started reissuing them, they called them the SA 2200. I got one, I got two of them and I got uh, that I've had done in there, both in kind of off, off the shelf, uh, not off the shelf, but like custom color. One's a cream white and, um, with a Bigsby style tremolo on it. And then the other one I have is a, um, that I have over here. I can't reach, but it's basically like a 345 or 355 walnut. So okay. it's a, wall, it's yeah, a walnut King. finish. Yeah, it's beautiful. And um and it's just and, and that guitar is great. It's a triple pickup. I did a triple pickup. So it's like and um a tri triple humbucker all tappable uh and it's it's just it's got every that's a that's a good Swiss Army knife guitar I grab a lot. Um and I've got a um I've got a I've got a, a one of those Ernie Music Ernie Ball Music Man Sabers which is like my Oh yeah, that's a cool guitar. It's my shred guitar. That's like I picked that up and can go full Lukather on it, and it's right. so fun. I, I can't go full Lukather anyway, but like I try. And he that that guitar he uses are those Music Man guitars. Right. His, his signature model's dope. 
Uh, but I like this one because unlike his, I'm a big guy uh, as you are. And it's like, I don't need a guitar that dwarfs, you know, right. on me. So it's like, um, so the, the body it, on this guitar on the Sabre is a little bit more traditional Strat size. So it's almost like one of those, like, um, uh, it's like a dual humbucker, like, like, uh, you know, almost like a custom, uh, like we used to call them the custom session LA, you know, eighties, you right. know, hot, hot rod guitars, the boutique ones. So that's a fun guitar. I grab, I grab my, um, I have a 72 Les Paul custom and also a, uh, a Gibson Les Paul GO standard, which, which was a custom shop, um, VOS type guitar. They came out in the early two thousands. And, um, that's a special guitar to me because of, um, it, it was the first guitar. So I had a fire take, you know, my house, my studio, everything I owned, uh, 13 years ago, uh, that, you know, just wiped me out and it was everything I owned every, I mean, I had, at that point I'd collected my whole life. So, you know, I had like 50 vintage guitars and oh, Jesus. tons of vintage drum kits and probably like 20 or 30 vintage microphones and like, you know, every master tape and every master recording to everything I'd ever done, uh -huh. entire, everything gone. Um, anyway, that's, I, you know, that's a recurring story, but at the same time, um, my friend, uh, pink, who I'd worked with on several records, I literally didn't have a single guitar to my name anymore. All I had was an acoustic guitar that I was in the shop getting repaired, uh, that, that, uh, that I didn't have an electric, I didn't have a single electric guitar anymore. And she came over and, um, and brought this guitar in, in and she's like, I don't know anything about guitars. She goes, I just went to the, this guitar shop and said, give me the best, give me the best, you know, Les Paul you have. <laughs> and she bought it and brought it to me with a bow on the case. Oh, bless her. And so it's technically the oldest thing I own <laughs> because right. I don't own anything prior to 2007, Man. Uh, uh, you know, and, uh, and it is, uh, it is, a beautiful guitar and it's a beautiful workhorse and it's got sentimental value now since considering right. everything sentimental prior to that is gone. Right. So, um, so, and, and it sounds amazing and it plays great. I, I put these custom, uh, MCI by mission, these mission pickups in them okay. that are incredible. It's like their tape take on a double cream setup by like a, like a, almost like a DiMarzio, but, uh, because my 72 that I bought came with, two double cream DiMarzio super distortions in it. Okay. And, uh, and I loved it. And I was like, God, I haven't played these pickups in a long time. They're so screamy and raunchy and awesome, you know? Uh, but, but the, this guy MC, this, this guy at mission, uh, th that does these pickups. I, I mean, they're incredible. They're so cool. good. So I've got a couple of those in there. Um, I could go on. I mean, I've got like, like I said, I've got, I've got a lot of fun, toys well i'll tell you what we got to get you set up with my new p90s that we did with fishman oh hell yeah yeah you do <laughs> yeah. that would be amazing they turned out really really good i've been hearing them and i can see in the background on your reverend telly there yeah that, that's probably right what you there. that's what you got in there that's it you have yeah, those in yeah. there oh man that's great it's, i'm glad they did a p90 i guess i fell asleep at the wheel and was didn't think, didn't check in on them and see what was uh, happening. I'm glad that you guys did a P90. That's amazing. Well, we just, you know, we voiced them last February. And then, of course, COVID hit. They were supposed to come out last summer, but then, you know, 
That didn't happen. So yeah. now the standalone pickups themselves aren't going to be out until like June. Mm-hmm. So the, the separate set. Uh, but they able, we were able to make them in time to put them, put them in my signature guitar. It's slightly different um, functionality and the ones that's on the right. We came up with this cool out of phase thing. Cause I love the out of phase thing, but my favorite thing is that Peter green setting when you're in the middle and you got both pickups on, you just roll back one of the pickups just a little bit and it gets all fat, but it still has yep. the quack. Yeah. And so there's a little preset inside the Reverend where you can set it to be just the neck pickup rolled back just a hair. So when I click that middle position to get out of phase, it's actually not quite out of phase. Oh, it's that's that awesome. Fat, it's that fatter sound. Oh, so that's great. That's on the Reverend. But on the other, on the on the standalone set that Fishman's putting out, um, it's going to be your standard, you know, two volume, two tone, and it's going to have the two voices that the fluence pickups always have. And it's going to have a third voice that's for the middle position. That's something else, but the added uh, out of phase thing is a is an extra feature. So, anyways. oh, that's so awesome. That's but, so uh, cool, man. But they look. I mean, they look right. And what's so great about them is, is that you know, I, there's something about a bridge pickup on a P90 that has that quack. Oh and, yeah, and the neck pickup has that velvety thing, and so on and so forth. But they're so freaking noisy, you know. You put a little. Well, of any- course, that's just it. I was like, if anybody needs to make a pickup like that that's noiseless and still sounds like a P90, that would be the that would be the jam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it's happening. That's great. That's great. Oh, I will be hitting up my buddies at Fishman. <laughs> Indeed, and they will set you up accordingly. That's awesome. I can't wait to try them, man. I've got a guitar to throw them in. So excellent. Awesome. I was, you know, I wanted, it was going to talk to you about something that's going on now in the music industry that people are talking about. My son's really into it, and we're and we're in the process of coming up with the best way to go forward with this idea of NFTs. Now, are you? That's a new thing to me. I haven't done. I saw that the Kings of Leon put out a record uh, recently with NFT, and I don't know enough about it. I I honestly, like I said, I, I got what I wished for after at, at the new year, January hit the ground running and have been buried with my nose in the console. Not right. like they, not like they did in the eighties with the nose on the console, right. but like, but, <laughs> Bugger but sugar. I, I'm, yeah, I must, must, <laughs> must, uh, give that disclaimer. The Peruvian marching powder is not That's in my right. life. Um, but like, I, I definitely have been, uh, behind on, on this. So I would rather ask you what, what can you tell me about it? Because I'm a newbie to this, uh, just hearing about it, you know, I don't understand the inner workings of it. Well, I, I'm not a hundred percent up to snuff on it, other than the fact that you can create this unique um, identity as a piece of art, either visual or combine, you know, uh, video with music and have it be this standalone piece of art that has this signal chain to it. Not signal chain. What's what's the word? Oh, Dylan's not here. Dylan will. Dylan could come on camera right now and, and rattle forth. Um, yeah. But it's this idea of you create art that's a one of a kind thing, and you can create this. It's it's this thing that cannot be. You can't crack the code. So it's this unique piece of art um, that people buy, and people are selling them for. I mean, like we had a couple of tracks off the record that we didn't put on that are kind of have some goofy lyrics, and we're coming up with video for it. So it'll be like this standalone thing that a collector could buy for X amount of dough. And uh, there's a little contract that you do digitally that it's the standalone piece of art, but then, you know, people can sell it on down the line and you'll always get a piece of it. So it's kind of a way to be able to monetize art 
in a digital realm um, and kind of cut out any kind of, you know, ASCAP, BMI type of a thing as far as that's concerned. Interesting, yeah. <clears throat> and some people are selling them for ridiculous amounts of money. And then, of course, it feeds into this whole idea of cryptocurrency and... Like blockchain and, you and know, all that. And all, sure. all that kind of stuff, which kind sure. of makes my head explode. But um, Oh, me too, yeah. <laughs> you know, I find it hard I, enough I, just to get up in the morning, to be honest with you. Oh, but, yeah, uh, <laughs> no kidding. I mean, and I'm all about it because I love... I have always been a big fan of progress and, uh, right. and, and, and how things embracing the future, obviously while being, um, uh, romantic for the past. So, yes. so, I, so there's a, you have to be able to do both, I think. And so I'm excited for that because like I said earlier in our conversation, um, you know, when, when things flipped and record stores dried up and it all went to streaming, um, it got exciting for me musically right. because I was a, I, you know, you can, you can put a record out whenever you want. You're not waiting for a record label to, to like, you know, put you in the system and a schedule and all this. So, you know, it, it, there, there's, that's very interesting to me, you know, I right. mean, I don't even care about selling CDs, you know, the other abbreviated um, right. form of currency in, in music where it's like, I mean, I don't even have a CD player in any, in anywhere. people it's send me CDs and I'm like, ah, I don't know what to tell you. I don't know how to play this. Right. It's, it's I don't, a strange I can't thing. stick this in anything. <laughs> I, I don't have anything that this will play on. So um, same with DVDs. I don't even have a DVD player anymore either right. because we just well, they, you can't. They're not even on computers anymore. That would be my thing is pop it in my no. laptop. And now it's like, no, yeah, it's exactly. not there. Yeah. So CD sales and, and uh, you know, things like that don't really ever amount to much when it comes to, uh, whatever I put out. I mean, sure. and I know that I'm a small artist, but at that rate, but it, I'm saying I would love to, I would love to get more involved in what this means and how, how it can benefit the fan, how right. it can benefit them. And, Cause the artist, I mean, I'm sure they're already, you know, figuring out how that can benefit them, but I want to know, I need to explore it more. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm excited. I, and that's one of the beauties of this business if you're open to progress and you're open to change is you learn something new every day. I mean, I'm still learning just like you learn, you're learning that from your kid. I learned right. something from my kid. I learned something from every young artist that comes in this door every day. That's why I don't just say this, you come in my, my world, you're going to make a record the way I make it. Right. You know? <laughs> and, and that's kind of bullshit because I swear I'm still learning cool techniques and things uh that i never knew existed because some per you know 20 year old comes in here and schools me on something and i fucking <laughs> love it it's like it's awesome it just right. makes you know makes this midlife crisis so much easier <laughs> <laughs> you know the sad thing is i think we're a little past midlife <laughs> oh yeah, yeah that's true mild life crisis <laughs> someone said I, some someone on the internet the other day on the internet this might sound like a boomer already but um, <laughs> <laughs> someone on uh, uh instagram commented you're too old to wear that hat I thought, you know what, you fucking little shit. I shit bigger than you. That's right. That's right. And just, just, just earmark that so you can see what they're wearing when they're fifty. <laughs> yeah, ex exactly. And you're not going to even live that long. Right. You're too old Valley to be boy. on that. You're too old to be on that hoverboard, bro. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. 
Lord have mercy. Yeah. So, you know, when when did you move back to Georgia? So you went out to L.A. and were, or were you always kind of had two frontiers? Well, so I, or do you okay. still have or do you still go out? Uh, so here's here's on. here's the here's the timeline. Uh, in the in 1988, I graduated high school and moved the next day to Hollywood, California, Wild. from a very small rural town in northern Georgia, and um, that was a, a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful culture shock. And um, and my that was my that was my college that was my street smarts that was my guerrilla marketing that was everything you could imagine that you know boot camp for going through this was at that time pre-internet pre-everything so it was a really amazing time to get your get your hustle on and and you had to you had to be ruthless or or right. you went or you literally did what several bandmates in my band did or like, or bands I knew out there, you did exactly what they did, which is within three months of being out there, you packed it up and went back to wherever you came from. Right. And, uh, because it was, it was, it, it was tough. It was a grind, but it was great. And lived out there for about, you know, got, our band got signed at the time. We were one of the last bands standing in the hair metal abyss that was disappearing. And, um, we got signed to a major label and, did the whole thing. And then when we, when we got signed and, and put our record out, uh, we, after we went on tour, uh, we decided that LA was just not, that was the, not the place for us to be. We should go back and we should go back to our roots and be in a Georgia band where we're from. Cause that's where we were from. So we moved back and moved to Atlanta. So we called Atlanta home and that, that was the place where we always played, but we didn't live. We lived in a, we, we were from rural Georgia. So we went back and we lived in Atlanta proper and that, and you know, obviously that band didn't work out and, and many, many, uh, attempts later uh with different artists and touring 200 days a year for the entire nineties. Um, still called Atlanta home. So for 16 years, uh, I lived in Atlanta proper and that kind of came up in that town. And that's where I found my identity and found myself and found players and uh, other players and found my producer chops there, uh, started my studio, started coming up in that world there. And then once early two thousands, um, you know, careful what you wish for all of a sudden I'm, I'm, I'm getting calls a lot to make records for bigger artists and, and, and write with them and stuff like that. But I'm on a plane every other week going to LA to do it. And I was like, Oh, I'm going to have to move back to LA. I'm going to have to go back to LA, aren't I? And so we packed it up and we moved out to LA again in like Oh four of Oh, something like, um, Oh five, maybe Oh six. I can't remember. I think it was like Oh five or six. And, um, and that was again, 13 years back in Los Angeles. Uh, and uh, for the last like seven or eight years, uh, I was going back and forth to Nashville because I started realizing, well, the, you know, music was changing uh, as far as it, like what we've touched on earlier, you know, the technology had changed drastically. Uh, the landscape had changed for how to make records. You could make them from other places. You didn't have to make them all in Los Angeles at some big fancy studio. So I always right. had my own studio. Um, and I started a studio in Nashville. So I built a, I put a studio, studio in an old building that was there, uh, in downtown and, um, and still had my studio out West and out in Santa Monica and started going back and forth. 
and was just going back and forth a lot because I found myself making more and more records in Nashville and loved that because I, it was three hours from where I grew up. It was three hours from home, uh, in Georgia. And it was, um, it was just nice to be back in the South. Plus a lot of my friends, I had a lot of friends in LA, but I don't ever see them because it's right. so spread out. Everybody lives like, you know, literally it's literally, you know, 15 miles or two hours, you know, right. <laughs> to get to somebody out there because of just the amount of fucking traffic and people. So I was yearning to get back to have some more space. And so we go back here, back and forth and make records here and in Tennessee and, uh, realize more and more people, more and more rock bands were thriving out of and rock and alternative artists and alt country and things like that. Things that I was all dabbling in, uh, with artists, a lot of them were based out of here, out of Tennessee. And that wasn't, that was not an option 10 years ago, you know, or 20 years ago, even 15 years ago, whatever it was all, it was all country and Christian, you know? So like it, just the fact that this whole other subculture bo boomed here and the music industry changed and you didn't have to be stuck in LA to do it all the time. Right. Uh, that was the best thing ever. So, uh, now, uh, cut to last year during the beginning of the pandemic, it was like, okay, let's, let's, let's get out of LA. And so, uh, you know, bought a farm out in like about 45 minutes outside of Nashville, and Okay. built the studio and, been here, been here ever since. Sold, oh, so sold. you're in Nashville. For some reason, I thought you were in Georgia. I don't know. I'm no, but I'm from Georgia, and I go back down there a lot to see my my family. Got but, it. Uh, but uh, I have been pretty much uh, what you would consider technically Nashville, but not a Nashvilleian. Yeah, yeah. I'm a I'm a Nashvilleian civilian, and uh, and and I love it because you know it's a lot of my like I said, a lot of my friends are here. Even though the last year has kind of been a wash, the, the pandemic has caused. Uh, you know, not a lot of people to be able to hang out and see people and make records until uh, recently that's starting to get a little easier. Uh, but, um, but like I said, I love it. And I, and I built this big dream studio here that I couldn't have afforded awesome. or done in right. LA. And so I've kept my little studio in LA, which I love and I'll, and, and we'll continue to have to always go back there to work because there's so many people that I work with that live in LA. Right. Uh, and I'm okay with that because, Anything in small doses is nice, you know. <laughs> so how do you juggle what you'd like to work on recently? I mean, you, you got to have everybody and their brother asking you to produce their records and stuff like that. And how, how do you kind of pick and choose the projects you want to do at this point without getting without getting well, yourself in trouble here? <laughs> yeah, well I, well, I honestly, I rely on my manager a lot. He's, okay. he's sort of my, he's my Yoda. He's my the guy with who's the big picture guy. And he's, he's also the devil's advocate and he's, he's also the A&R guy basically for me. So he, he knows what I, we've been together 20 years. So he knows what I like and knows what would be interesting to me. Sometimes he knows it's something that might, that might, I might never think twice about doing, but he knows in the back of his mind, it would be brilliant if we work together. And that's happened more often than not where he'll put me with somebody that I'm like, hmm, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't expect to do that, but we did great work and we loved it. So um, I, I rely heavily on him because, you know, I, I just don't, I'm, I burned out on being this social butterfly for years, going out to clubs and doing all the industry parties. Right. You know, hey. I just, I can't take it. I, yeah. my, my, I can't take it anymore. And there's, it's just, it's just not, not for me, but at the same time, 
I've come to realize later in my life that music matters and, and making, making music matters more than, than party planning. And right. so I just don't care about that shit. So, but I do realize that it's a game and there has to be a certain amount of hustle involved. So, um, moving the operation to Tennessee has afforded me the luxury of being able to pick and choose more and be just do things I want to do more than things that are just going to pay my mortgage in Malibu or whatever, which right. whatever, cry me a fucking river. I know that's great. <laughs> I had a house in Malibu for 13 years and I loved every minute of it and I still love it there, but I just, you know, you, you move on. I mean, that's the longest I've really ever stayed anywhere except Atlanta. And I didn't even see Atlanta those 16 years much. Cause I was gone 200 days a year, right. you know, on tour. So now that I don't do 200 days a year on tour, cause I don't want to, right. um, I want to be where I can, where I want to be. And, right. um, and also having a family and my kid's 13 and we're, you know, we, we're, we're very, very tight. He and I, so, you know, there's just a, I think there's just a lot of reasons why, but all of that to say, um, I want to work on records that are, that I feel like uh, I'm going to be happy at the end of them and not miserable. <laughs> and right. There's definitely been a plenty of those where you're just miserable at the end of it. And that's, I mean, that's part of everybody's got a job and everybody's got a job that, that requires them to do things sometimes that, that are, you know, uh, for financial interest and not for artistic. I mean, every struggling artist had their day job at Starbucks. I don't think they wanted to be a, you know, a latte slinger the rest of their life, right. you know, they just, they did it to afford a PA so they could go out and tour. They did it so they could like, you know, afford to make a record. And, you know, right. that's, that's, that's kind of what you do. You know I mean? That's like, that's, that, that's, that's what we call making the donuts. You know? That's right. Making the, make the damn donuts. donuts. <laughs> well, listen, my friend, thanks so much for chatting with us today. This has been a fascinating conversation. I certainly hope we get to hang out one of these one of these. I would days. love that too, man. Yeah, I know we've only really met one time at Sweetwater Fest. Uh, yes. Yeah, uh, which was great and awesome to finally get to meet the legend of Greg Cock because I'm a massive fan of your playing, sir. I, oh, well, bless I you. I watch it and much. cry often. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> well, no, man. It's so great to see <laughs> somebody that can play so good and so effortlessly and with so much command and i don't know i i play better when i see people that that have a have mastered their instrument like you have so i'm not just blowing you up i'm just saying it's uh you know kudos to you oh well thank you very much i appreciate it immensely and uh Let's just say that that kind of positive reinforcement, I don't hear a lot behind the cheddar curtain. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you know, you're not exactly, uh, no, there's there's some great musicians around here, don't get me wrong, but it's not exactly a music town per se. But that's that's why I love it. You know what I mean? It's a- Of course, of course. Good place that's to great. raise raise the clan, as that's, it were. That's right, man. That's right. Well, you're doing a great job, my friend. I'm doing what I can. Well, thank you so much. Great to talk with you and uh, stay safe and all that kind of stuff. And hopefully see you soon. Will do. All right, Greg. Thanks, Take care, my man. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Thank you so much, folks, for tuning in. Special thank you to Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, and the Mighty Fishman Transducers for making this podcast possible. If you enjoyed yourself, ladies and gentlemen, please subscribe and review so that people can get the word out that this is worth experiencing. Can you dig it? 
Thanks again. We'll see you soon. Or you'll hear me soon. <laughs>